good morning. Um, maybe you're listening to this in the morning live while I'm here, and maybe you're going to wait till Tuesday when it comes out on the recording. In fact, uh, just as we were starting, I was looking out the window at the at the sun and the flowers on the trees and thinking, I, it'd be pretty hard to stay inside and take this live stream this morning if I was at home. Uh, but uh, I, I'm just glad that we have the opportunity to to uh, present the material in different kinds of ways, and uh, and I trust you'll engage with it. Um, I want to start today with a with a relatively simple question. I think you'll all get it right. My question is this: What is this object? Can anyone tell me? There's a few in. In here with me? It's a chair. A chair. It's a chair. Huh. Somehow you got that right. Now, that's actually a, a fairly extraordinary feat uh, and a very important ability for humans. Uh, and here's why. When you look at this object, there are an awful lot of details coming into your eyes. And there's an awful lot of details that maybe are, are kind of behind the scenes but are just as real. And if we were going to take, um, take a, a spreadsheet or something and start detailing the description of this object, we could literally almost go on for infinity. We could say the exact height of the seat. We could say the height of the rest. We could say the width of the arms. We could say the species of the wood. We could say the, the, the growth rate of the wood that went into it and therefore calculate the strength of the wood. We could look at the bolts that hold it, in, in, hold it together and look at their tensile strength. And we, look at, we could describe the, the thread pitch of the bolts and we could go on and on and on forever describing the details of this object. And yet, if you see it just out of the very corner of your eye for just a moment, you immediately sort through all of those details and say, it's a chair. Now let's make it even more interesting. What is this? That would be a chair. A chair. Huh. You know, if we, if we took the, uh, the thousand items of description of that object and this object, there would be far more different points than the same points. Far more of the actual individual data points of description would be different from that one to this one. And yet you immediately sort through all of that information, pull out the information that's essential to identification, and say it's a chair. And it's very interesting, because if we cut the backrest off, you'd probably all say stool. But it's a funny stool, because stools have a slightly different purpose. Uh, they, uh, stools are more active. Uh, a stool is used at a workstation, usually a little bit taller because it's not quite at knee height, so you can get up and down with less effort and move around your workstation or something like that. But we know those things. And that's, uh, that's something that we're going to, I think is going to help you understand what I'm trying to talk about today. 
But we are actually looking at the book of Matthew. And uh, last week we looked at Mark. And we saw that Mark is kind of the shortest of the Gospels. And it's very matter of fact. And it doesn't actually specifically directly give us the answer to the question, who is Jesus? But as we read through the account of the life of Jesus that Mark gives us, um, that question is front of mind. We're, we're, we're challenged to, to address the question and answer it for ourselves. And that's important. But as we, as we turn to Matthew, we see that he has, uh, just ignore Luke for a minute till next week anyways, but, but in, in Matthew here we can see that about 94% or almost all of what's in Mark is also in Matthew. But Matthew has about 20% unique material that's not in Matthew or Luke, and then some overlap with Luke. So the, the chart kind of lays that out. We don't need all the detail on the chart, but I'm just thinking about that 20% that's unique to Matthew. What is Matthew trying to get across to us in this unique material that only he puts in? Because he has a purpose. He has a very, very specific reason and way in which he arranges this material that... that communicates something that I think is, is very, um, very straightforward. It means a lot. What Matthew's trying to communicate with that extra material is that he's telling a story that is a continuation of what came before. So we could summarize it like this. In Matthew, God says, there is only one story. Now, we're going to finish that sentence a little bit later on. But for now, that's all we need. There's only one story. Now, let's just look at a few of the details in Matthew that give, give us that impression and, and give us that information. And I think it's, it's irrefutable, uh, in my estimation anyways, that this is what's going on. If we just look at the nativity... well. Actually, that's second. Let's go first to the genealogy, because that's the first thing that comes up in the gospel, the genealogy. It's not in Mark, but it's the first thing in Matthew. And it traces the generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and then from exile to Jesus. Now, if that was the only thing that Matthew added to Mark, that would be enough to make it clear that he's telling us, this is the next page if you're reading Malachi and you come to the end and you turn the page in the story, the next page is Matthew. The next page is the coming of Jesus. It's a continuation of the same story. It's not a new story. It's not a disconnect. He, he, the genealogy just makes it clear that this is Matthew's mindset. This is, this is one thing that is continuing. Now, it's, it's getting exponentially uh, different and better and coming to a climax in the, in the Gospels, but it's not a different story. It's part of the same story. Um, the Nativity, as I mentioned a moment ago, out of order, but the Nativity uh, makes it very clear. This is additional material that Mark didn't include, and at every point in the story, Matthew points out that this is to fulfill what the prophet said. Matthew 22, verse 23 is, is kind of a summary statement. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. This is mentioned five times just in the Christmas story. So first the genealogy, then this clear indication that what's happening in Jesus is the next page from the prophecies, a continuation, a fulfillment, the next thing the story now picks up and continues. As I went through Matthew, I counted more than 80 verses 
that reference the Old Testament. Some of them directly with a quote, but some of them just by mentioning a story or referring back to or bringing a thought from the Old Testament into Jesus' teaching or something like that. So I, I'm sure I missed. I didn't actually, you know, I'm, I didn't do the detailed spreadsheet of every verse and analysis, but I picked up tons of places. I just had a tick mark beside as I was reading. And my knowledge of the Old Testament isn't complete, so it's everywhere as you read Matthew. But apart from even just those specific fulfillment of prophecies or specific references to the Old Testament, there's something even bigger in the way uh, Matthew arranges the story. So I think he does this intentionally, and there's very clear parallels between Moses, the first salvation story in the Bible, and Jesus. So we can go through it. He arranges the story of Jesus in his gospel to parallel the story of Moses. Like Moses, both were, were, uh, were sentenced to death by decree of the king and then were miraculously saved from that decree. Both, uh, both Moses and Jesus spent time in the wilderness in preparation before their primary ministry began. Um. The Bible frequently speaks of the going through the Red Sea as a baptism. And so both Moses' primary ministry and Jesus' primary ministry begin with baptism, going through water. Um, after the baptism, after the Red Sea, uh, Moses arranged his ministry into 12 tribes, which he led without a home. Jesus called 12 disciples, which he led around the, around the land without a home. The scriptures say... They were like a fox without a place to lay their heads. Um, both of them were foundational to the founding of a new arrangement of God's people. Uh, Moses, the people of Israel, the nation, and Jesus, the church. Both were teachers. Both were miracle workers. And here's an interesting point uh, that, that kind of pulls it together in my mind anyways. Moses' ministry came to the Jordan River. Jesus' ministry started in the Jordan River. It's like a baton pass on the track, right? Moses came right up to the edge but didn't cross. Jesus started in the river and then came out and continued. Now, I think Matthew arranges the first portion of his gospel specifically to mirror the Exodus story. Not that he made up facts. They're all true. But the, the facts that he, just like when you identified this as a chair, you didn't notice all the facts. You just noted the ones that were needed to identify what it was. And that's what Matthew's doing. He's just identifying the points in the story. There's many points, as it says in the scriptures. If everything was written down, it would include books and books and books. There wouldn't be enough pages. But he specifically picks the details that give it meaning give it context that help us to know what he's talking about and what Jesus was doing. This is the fulfillment of the incomplete salvation that Moses brought, that God brought through Moses. Now Jesus is bringing a similar salvation, but his is going all the way to the cross, which is better and more full and, uh, and fills out what was a shadow before is now becomes the reality. Now we could go on in Matthew in this vein and, 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 uh, and at least if this was a, a Bible college course, you could, you could do three lectures on how Matthew is creating this uh, impression or this 
conviction that this is a continued story. But let's just look at let's just look at one more point. Um, in First Samuel chapter seven verse sixteen, it says uh, of King David, "Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." Now, even in David's day, he wasn't under the perception that he was going to live forever even though this promise was made of him. And it was very quickly evident that even his physical throne on earth wasn't going to last forever because we have uh, the divided kingdom and we have the exile and all of these things. And so people look at that and early on knew that this was not speaking specifically of David, but of something else God was doing. And they pick up on this in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was blind and mute, and it kicks off a huge controversy that goes all the way through the chapter. And um, one of the things that comes up is the crowds ask this question. Could this be the son of David? And they're referencing this prophecy from 1 Samuel chapter 7. We know David's kingdom didn't last in the way that maybe David himself might have thought it would or whatever. But, but now we see something happening. Could it be the fulfillment of that? And the crowds at that point had an insight because they were asking a different question. They were asking, okay, if David's kingdom was established forever, we believe that to be true, but his physical kingdom didn't last forever. So when Jesus starts casting out demons, could it be that God is establishing a kingdom of David that goes even below or underneath the political systems of the world? They've got an insight. Now later on we know they reject that idea and then as the church grows they, they go back to it. It's a bit of a back and forth. Uh, but, but we see this happening there. They're asking this question and Jesus at the end of this discourse says it like this in verse 28. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. So without directly answering it, he says, yes, the fact that I'm casting out demons is demonstration that I am fulfilling the promise to David and Samuel. The kingdom of God has arrived, not will arrive, not might one day in some strange way be, be realized, but if this is happening in front of your eyes, the kingdom of God has arrived among you right now in my presence. And again, a tie to the Old Testament. This is a continuation of the same story. In another place, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes it this way. Don't, mis don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. In the, in the language I'm using this morning, we could, we could translate that I came to continue the story that God started in them. That's what it, that, you know, that's just a, another uh, phraseology to say the same thing. I came to accomplish their purposes. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purposes are achieved. And so he's creating that continuity. No, I'm not 
stopping everything that happened in the Old Testament, now starting a new thing. What I'm doing is achieving the purposes for which those things were. They were on purpose. They had a purpose. They were part of the story, and now their purposes are being fully achieved. So this is Jesus' own words. And so I think it's safe to say when when Matthew adds all these details that weren't in Mark, he's doing it for a reason. And at least part, if not his main reason, is to impress upon us that there is only one story. There is only one story. And as the story builds and comes to the critical moments in it, uh, in the story of Jesus, it's not, it's not different. Anyways, we go on for a long time on that in Matthew. But I'm going to stop it there and move on to application. And, and I think, I'm not sure in this application if it's just for me. And if that's the case, then this is a testimony. But if it's for you too, then, then you can either be encouraged by my testimony of how these truths have affected my life this year, or I, I hope and I trust, I believe for many of you, it will uh, resonate with what, what you're thinking about and struggling with as well. But I need to give credit where credit is due because these ideas are not my own. I come to them with, with much guidance, and I've just put a few of the most prominent voices uh, but it's true over the last few years uh, I've, been, I've been almost desperately searching for understanding in a world that, that becomes, seems to be becoming increasingly difficult to understand. And some of the key voices that have helped me sort these thoughts out and, and give me clarity are the ones on the screen. And there's, a, there's obviously, even as I was reviewing them this morning, I thought, oh, there's this person I should have put up there and this one that have really helped me understand. So I just give credit. It's not, it's not just me. Uh, don't uh, it's not me that's come up with this, uh, but it's what I've learned as I've, I've sought to understand uh, where I live. Now, to flip from that for a moment uh, and get into the topic I'm, where I think the application of this one story in Matthew hits me today in the context in which I live, uh, I did a search, and, and this literally took me three minutes to put these screenshots together. So let's just flip through it quickly. Awakening from the meaning crisis. The meaning of life, deep therapy for existential crisis and despair. Meaning crisis and chill. John Cleese, the meaning crisis. The meaning crisis for beginners. Zombies and our modern crisis of meaning. Symbols and the meaning crisis. And that was just like literally just three minutes looking around on this topic. And, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's something that has become almost, you know, it doesn't matter. As, as you look through these different, um, different talks on this topic, they come from biologists, they come from psychologists, they come from pop culture people, they, they come from music, they come from, from, uh, from different, like, different fields of science, they come from historians, they come from journalists. Everyone's talking about this. Now maybe you've encountered it, maybe you haven't, maybe you've searched for it, maybe you've just uh, not been paying, paying attention, but this has been impactful for me because... Um, <coughs> Wherever you look, you can find almost immediately people talking about the fact that we live in a culture that is 
is struggling with what is meaningful. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? It's a deep struggle. It's a common struggle. It's being talked about everywhere. And the interesting thing about it, even though they come to drastically different conclusions, and even though they come from drastically different fields of disciplines at this question, they're all coming to a similar uh, conclusion about the way out. And you know what they all say? It has to do with story. It has to do with narrative. It has to do with the fact that in the past, everyone in our culture agreed what the story was. Therefore, they knew that even if they believed the Bible or not, they, they, every, we had a common understanding of what this grand story into which all of our lives and, our, and everything fits. And we could therefore have constructive conversations, even with people who differed with us very much, because we agreed on the story we were in. We agreed whether this was a chair or a stool. So we knew which details we could eliminate from our considerations and which ones we had to take into account. But we live in a world now where there's endless overload of information and no narrative that makes sense of it. No common, consistent, agreed-upon story. And it's driving us all into madness. And I take that literally. Every measure in the last 20 years that you can put, from suicide to depression to mental breakdown to family breakdown to political breakdown to, to breakdown and debate to education decline, every measurement you can take in our society is declining. There's so much information and everyone's telling a different story about what it means and which of the information you have to pay attention to and which you can ignore. And none of us, not even the smartest, not even whole departments and universities have the capacity for all the information. There is only one who knows all. And that is our God and Father, the creator of all. He can hold all the information in his mind at one time and plot a course that makes sense through it. So, if I was to go back to the chairs for a minute, and if I was to tell you that, um, or, or let's put it this way, if I gave you ten sheets of paper with a thousand details describing each of these two objects, and you started looking down the page at all the details, the tensile strength, the diameter, the, the, the area of, of space that the chair takes up in all its totality, the moisture content, every, every detail. You could spend hours looking at that list of a thousand data items and never understand that you're looking at the description of a chair. Because you don't have a story. You don't know the purpose but once you open your eyes and look at this object, you eliminate almost all the data. Because now you know the purpose. You know which data points you can ignore and which ones you have to pay attention to. But let's change the story. Let's tell this story. You're in a house. The power's been out for 10 days. It's the middle of winter. Your floor is solid and perfectly fine for sitting on, but you're freezing to death. 
What do you see? Fuel. Irrelevant. Nothing you can burn there. Change the story and the relevant details change. Their purposes change. And this one now has a very different purpose from that one because you can burn it and save yourself from death. You tell a different story and you pay attention to different details and you throw aside other details. It's not an accident that God gave us a book that's full of stories. And it's not an accident that those stories make up one big story from Genesis to Revelation. Because that's how he made us. In his infinite wisdom, as we were wonderfully and beautifully put together in our mother's wombs, he made us into creatures that create meaning out of story. And there is only one true story. There is only one. All the other stories hold parts of truth and falsehood. Even the story that the devil told in the form of the serpent to Eve in the garden. Partial truth, partial lie and exaggeration. It wasn't a true story, and it let down. When she interpreted the world and decided which details were important and which she could ignore based on a false story, it went the wrong way. There's only one true story. So how do we, I mean obviously I've opened a topic that's much larger than we can cover in one Sunday morning. But I think a place I want to go uh, to just kind of bring this together a bit is the parable of the sower. Because I think, I think the parable of the sower is a key parable. If we un- want to understand the story of the kingdom of heaven and how it works in this world, the parable of the sower, sower I think is crucial and key. And it kind of opens up all the other parables if we understand this one first. Uh, that's, that's my impression. And so that's where I'm going to go. But I'm not going to tell the parable. You know it quite well. And if you don't, open your Bibles after, after this service to Matthew 13 and read it for yourself. But it's the place where, where the, the sower throws seed on the different kinds of ground. And some springs up and some doesn't. And some gets uh, choked up by weeds. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the details because I just want to spend a few minutes reading uh, a part of Jesus' description of what the parable means. So listen in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus' disciples asked him, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even, the, even what they have will be taken from them. So he's, he's not using, Jesus isn't using the the topic about meaning and story that I am uh, because this what the language I'm using is the language that my culture is using to describe these things. Jesus was in a different cultural context and he's using different words and analogies but he's describing the same thing. What he's saying here is that those who have will be given more and those who do not have it will be taken from them. So Well, let's read on, and it'll start to make more sense. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This people's hearts 
heart has become callous. They hardly hear their, with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So to translate that into the current cultural language, it goes like this. Everyone is looking at Jesus and seeing the same large amounts of data. And some people are telling a story that says King David will come as a royal king, a political figure that overthrows the Romans. And they're looking at all the data points that is Jesus' life and teaching, and they don't see Messiah. They're seeing it all, but they're not seeing it because they're in a different story. They've convinced themselves of that. But then there's other people who are looking at those Old Testament prophecies, like the only one I mentioned, but there's many more, like David, and, and they're, saying, they're asking the question, well, maybe, maybe this kingdom isn't about overturning the Romans. Maybe it goes even deeper than that, and it's about overturning sin and death at its root, the power from which all the evil empires get their strength. Maybe it's a more comprehensive story. And they're looking at exactly the same life of Jesus in front of their eyes, and they're seeing Messiah. They're seeing the fulfillment of the promises because they've got the right story. They know which, what they can ignore, and they know what they need to pay attention to. Jesus goes on, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And here he's saying exactly what I just said. The prophets and the righteous people from the past. Think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the others and the prophets. They longed to see what you're looking at. Because they understood that this was a story built on faith. This was a story about the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of the earth. And they longed for its fulfillment, which they knew was being carried out in their lives, but not fulfilled, not finished. And now you're the ones that are seeing what they longed for. But some of you are looking straight at it, but you don't see it. Same data, different conclusion. I'm going to add an illustration I, I cut out, but I think we have a moment for it. I remember hearing the story, and I think I've told this one in this church before, but it's relevant here. Uh, some North American missionaries were in a, in a cultural context uh, where they started a church, and they wanted a place to meet. There was lots of believers, and they had songs in native language and everything. And they built a church building, and, and it was filled with people. And they raised more funds, and they put pews in the building, and no one came in. They would want to sing outside, and be, previously they'd been singing inside. But once the pews were there, they, they, nobody came in. And so they, they inquired about that, and they, and they thought, well, what's, what's going on here? And what they found out is that these people had never seen in their entire lives a, an object meant for sitting on it that had a backrest. 
They did not know what to do. They wanted to be in there, but they had no story to make meaning out of what they were looking at. Do you come in both sides? Do you take turns? Do you shuffle past people that are... Like, they didn't know. They couldn't put it together. They didn't know what to do. They had no story. They could all see all the details of the information, but they had no story to give it meaning. They did not know what the purpose was. And so, you know what they did? They took a saw and they cut all the backrests off the chairs, off the pews, and everyone came in. They knew what to do with that. Because you know what they did? They didn't do the thing we do where you come down the aisle and sail back. They started at the back and jumped over the pews till they got to the seat they wanted. They're used to sitting around fires on logs. They knew that story. They knew what to do. They knew what the purpose was. This is the way God made us. And it's evident in the fact that this is the book he gave us. We make meaning out of things in this way. So let's go back to this. In Matthew, God says, there is only one story, and we can finish the sentence now. And you are in it. You're a character in the story. You're a part of it. You have a part to play. However big or small, you have an essential part in the story of bringing forth the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Matthew, can you give me the slide? The, uh, in Matthew, God says, and the next one. There we go. You might have to follow the slides now. Try this. So, I told you this is a this is a testimony. This is a a bunch of information that's helped me in a struggle I was having, which was to try to make sense out of the world I live in. I feel like when I was a child the world makes sense. When I was a young man the world made sense, but in more the last ten years it's gotten exponentially harder to understand. Um In the last weeks, there's been a few people who've told me that more recently my sermons have become more impactful or more passionate. And I, I hadn't seen that in myself. I hadn't noticed that for myself. But when several people tell me, uh, it, it starts to think, well, maybe, maybe it's true. I mean, they're not lying to me. That's their impression. And so I was thinking about that a little bit, and, and I kind of thought as I was preparing this message that I think I, I, think I know what happened. You see, 2020 brought to me, and I think all of you, an awful lot of information, data points, we didn't know what to do with. We had no story to make sense of what was happening with COVID in the world. And everyone was trying to tell a story. So you had people who were telling a story that said, uh, humans have encountered many viruses in the past. This is just another one. Why all the why all the the uh, the reaction to something that's perfectly normal? And if you tell that story and listen to that story, there's some data points that you ignore and some data points that you pay attention to. And that's what stories do. That's their value. That's why we tell them. 
There was other people that were telling a story that the whole world was going to be thrown into complete disarray and possibly, uh, possibly to the point where economies and countries failed because of this virus. And if you're listening to that story, there's other data points that you pay attention to and some that you let slip by and throw away. Because we can't hold all the data in our minds. We're, we're finite. There's infinite data points in the world. Other people uh, tell a story about vaccines. Other people tell a different story. Some people tell a story about how, how the political impacts and some people tell a story about the social impact. Like, there's just so much. Everyone's competing to get the story that wins and make sense of this. But we live in Western cultures. I don't know how far this goes. It goes in English-speaking Western cultures, for sure. I think parts of Europe, but I don't know how far in the other languages because I'm not there. And I don't know how far in other parts of the world. I think it's quite different in some other parts of the world. But in our context, in Alberta, we live in a culture that no longer agrees what the story is. We used to agree the biblical story was the story. And so when you have a story, you know you, you can filter the data to figure out which points are meaningful and which ones aren't. And so when I came to the conclusion that plagues come from God and their purpose is to cause repentance. And that's what this story tells us. Then I in my own personal life could make sense of what's happening. And I, although I could see all the other data and go this way and that way as to which points are important or not, I knew for me, because I'm living the story of the kingdom of heaven, I could ignore large parts of those data and not really care about how they pan out and who, what the final conclusion is and who wins the battle over which points are important and which ones aren't. Because it's not going to change what I do. If the masked crowd wins and the unmasked crowd loses or the other way around is irrelevant to my repentance. It's not irrelevant. It affects my life. But it's, it's not the main point. It's a side detail. I can just let it pass. Just like the species of wood on this chair. I mean, if it was the wrong species, it wouldn't be strong enough to hold you up. But I don't care, and I don't even know what species it is. Someone figured that out. I don't have to pay attention to it. But I know what matters to my repentance. And I know that repentance requires of me to humble myself and say to all those other things, I don't know. I have opinions, sure, but I don't know. But I know this. God is calling me to turn to him with a single eye. That's what plagues are for. And so when I commit myself to the true story, I can make sense I know the purpose. I know my purpose. I know my place in the story. Help others repent and turn to Jesus. And then I can live with strength and confidence despite the confusion all around me. I'm going to close with, with one more story. We're on a story theme, so we better close with a story. This one's going to require a bit of imagination, but if I put this picture in, this, in front of you, and uh, if we had one of those machines at the optometrist's office that can track exactly where your eyes are looking, 
I can guarantee you that as you look at this picture, your eyes are going all over the place and they never settle. And why is that? Because you can't figure out the story. If there was a path, you'd ignore most of the detail in the picture and just look at the path. If there was a point of light, your eyes would focus on that point of light and ignore most of the other details in the picture. That's a, that's a scientific fact. That they can just put a scanner on your eyes and, and they can see that happening. But what I'm trying to say here is this is a picture, believe it or not, of a mountain. But because you're in the valley, down in the low ground where all the trees are, there's thousands upon thousands of data points and you can't make sense of it. I've been in that situation. Some of you have, some of you haven't, but I'm sure you can imagine it. And when you're in the deep forest, you can't tell which way is north, south, east, west. You can't even tell which way is up and down because it's going like this everywhere. If you want to climb the mountain, you need a compass or you need a map or you need something to tell you a story that gives you direction so you can make some decisions. So in the valley, there's infinite data points. Nothing makes sense. You don't know how far you are from town. You don't know where the highway is. You, you don't know anything. But as you climb the mountain, the number of data points gets less and less and less. The number of trees gets less. The number of the volume of land gets less the higher you get. And, and your, your ability to clearly see where you are and where you're going increases. There's no, there's no mystery about why mountains are often seen as sacred places. Even think of Mount Sinai. And when you get to the very tippy top of the mountain, there's very few details in sharp focus. There's just the top. But as you look around, you can see the town where your car is parked. You can see the highway. You can see that that next valley, if you go north and then turn up that other one, you get to Revelstoke. And you can see everything. Everything's clear. You know exactly where everything is, where it all fits. All the thousands and millions of details of the land below you fit in their proper place. They all make sense from the top of the mountain. Because there's only one thing. You're focused on one thing. Your feet are standing on one point of ground. Everything else has fallen away. And you can make sense of the details. So there's a story. There's one story. And it goes like this, if we want to summarize it in its grandest uh, summary. The Garden of Eden is pictured as a high place, as a mountain. The reason we know that is because the four rivers have their wellspring in the garden and they flow out from the garden to water the whole earth. That's the picture of a high spot from which all the rivers of the earth uh, go, flow out of. All the life-giving forces, all of the, everything has its meaning and its place and its proper order from that spot. And in that place of clarity, there is the presence of God with humans in perfect harmony. And there's no evil. There's no confusion. There's no lies. There's no suffering. The first man and woman chose at least for a while to follow a different story. I know I'm stylizing the whole thing here, but for our purposes, I think it makes sense. And they descended into the valley. And the human race lives 
in the confusion of the valley, everyone competing for which path is the right way to go. There's too many details to make sense of it. But we have to choose a story or we go literally go crazy. So we know which details we can ignore and which ones we have to pay attention to. At the other end of the story, there's another mountain. And it says that Jesus returns, his fulfillment, his kingdom comes in all of its fullness and completion, and the new Jerusalem, and at the feet of his throne, uh, Jerusalem, a city that oddly, when you read the description of it, sounds exactly like a garden. And from the feet of the throne flows the river of life, which goes out onto all the earth and gives it life. Again, a singular high point where everything is in line. Everything is in order. Everything's in its proper place. You know how it all is. And in the middle, between these two mountains, is a hill, a high place, called Golgotha. And on that hill stands a cross. And on that cross is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of the line of David, ushering in a kingdom that begins with him in its fullness but continues on to that second mountain when it's completely realized. And the one on that cross says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true story. If you want to make sense of the world, if you want to know your purpose in your place, if you want to know clearly what your, what your path is and which details you have to pay attention to and which ones you can ignore... Look at the cross. You're not on this mountain. You're not on this mountain yet. But he says, I am the light. If you remember the dark forest, if there was just a point of light, we'd know where to focus our eyes. Jesus says, I am the light. I am the lamp. I am the way. There's a lot of stories that hold partial truths, but I am the truth and I am the way. I am the story. I am the door. How do you enter this story, the one story, the one fully true story, and become a character in it with a purpose and meaning and a place in the narrative? By kneeling at the cross and saying, yes, this is my Savior, this is my Lord. He's died for my sins. He opens the door and I walk in and I receive the light. And then as Romans 12, many of you have been studying, I know my path because the one who opens the door is a sacrifice. And so as I go through the door, I lay down my body as a living sacrifice. There's a lot of different competitions about what I should do with my self-esteem and my life and all of that stuff. And here's the true story. I offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what's the promise out of that? Then you will know God's perfect will. In other words, you'll know how to make decisions with purpose and meaning in this confusing world of millions of details and data points. It'll be like standing on the top of that mountain and seeing the valleys below and knowing where everything fits and therefore which way to go next. 
you'll be able to what that what that at least part of what that means is you'll know how to make sense of the world around you. Things will fall into their proper God-given places of priority in such a way that you can be clear on what you're doing in the midst of it. So that's my testimony. I've come to a place of much greater clarity through a year that's been entirely confusing where many times I felt completely lost and couldn't make a decision because I didn't know what to do. But when I submitted all those details to the one story, I started to see my spot. I started to see my purpose. And people tell me my sermons have gotten more passionate. Well, maybe that's true because I know what I'm supposed to say. Whereas before I was confused about that. One of the books, one of the authors that's given me guidance is this one. And it's, uh, it's not a terribly long book, but it has one chapter on each book of the Bible. So you know why I've been reading it the last few years. Because I'm look, every, every book I, I take into account what, what this book says as part of my guidance. Listen to the title. From God to You, 66 Love Letters. A conversation with God that invites you into his story. I want to read uh, from page 201 from this book. This is uh, as if Jesus was speaking to us. These aren't, this isn't a quote from the Bible, but this is the author of this book's uh, rendition of what Jesus is saying to us in the Gospel of Matthew. So his summary of what, Matt, what Jesus says to you in Matthew. I don't teach history. I am history. I am yesterday. I am today. I am tomorrow. Nothing I say is irrelevant. I tell one story. Not two. I have one plan. To bring all my people to the great dance. To lead them on the narrow road that moves through suffering to unimaginable joy. You could read that, that moves through all the confusing details. And yes, those details bring us suffering. But there's a conclusion, there's a mountain, where everything's clear on the other side. In Matthew, God says, there is only one story, and you have a part to play in it. We're going to close with a song and then a prayer. And this song, I think, helps us to focus our thoughts on this story. So if our worship team would come forward.